Hello and welcome to In Unison, the podcast about new choral music and the conductors, composers, and choristers who create it. We are your hosts. I am Zane Fiala, Artistic Director of the International Orange Chorale of San Francisco. And I'm Giacomo Di Gregoli, a tenor in IOCSF, the Golden Gate Men's Chorus, and the San Francisco Symphony Chorus. And this is... In Unison! Yeah, I like being in unison. Hey everyone, as we mentioned on the last episode of In Unison, we're going to finish off season four of the podcast with a series of episodes focused on the composers that will be featured on IOCSF's upcoming December concert program entitled Freshly Squeezed. For many of those composers, we will be conducting, see what I did there, first time interviews with them over the coming weeks. But we've actually had some really engaging conversations with three of the composers already, Mari Isabel Valverde, Jake Heggie, and Dr. Zeneda Robles. We've gone through and selected segments of those interviews and compiled them here. So what you're about to hear are discussions specifically about those composers' compositions that will be premiered by IOCSF in December. If, after listening to this episode, you would like to hear the entire conversations with these three composers, please check out episode 203 for Mari, episode 205 for Jake, and episode 307 for Zeneda. And if you want to know more about the Freshly Squeezed program and the International Orange Chorale, check out episode 408, which came out just last week. Before we get rolling, we also want to take a moment and say a big thank you to the folks who are helping support the creation of this podcast. We couldn't have made it this far without our generous donors. So today, we're giving a shout out to two members of my family, my mother, Mary, and my aunt and uncle, Anne and Lee Collins. Thanks so much! If you would like to help support In Unison, please visit inunisonpodcast.com donate. Now, let's jump into our chat with Mari Isabel Valverde about her piece, I Flow, I Am. Um, I wanted to shift gears a little bit. Um, IOC has actually been working on um, a recording of an upcoming project of a piece of yours, I Flow, I Am, which is from bohemian poet Rin, uh, Rilke's Sonnets to Orpheus, number 29. Um, is, that, is, actually, actually, is that fair to say that he is bohemian? He's Austria-Hungarian. So I don't know what is that period of time like that place or space borders borders are silly you know anyway but well technical bohemia was a place as now it's just part of the czech republic but there was a place called bohemia and i know because that's where my family is from oh i'm a real you better check yourself (laughs) (laughs) well we exactly I, i ought to be careful um but that piece there's um there's a little bit um, about, I'll give the audience a little piece for those who don't know it, but I Flow I Am, from, from, your, from your notes, um, is a setting of Anita Barrows and Joanna Macy's translation of Rilke's 29th and ultimate sonnet to Orpheus. It's a spiritual commentary on the courage it takes to be present in darkness, breathing, speaking, living, and loving through pain and uncertainty. As Macy suggests, we may only survive on this planet by flowing with the turbulence of the earth, taking refuge in its beautiful chaos. Before we talk specifically about this piece, for those who don't know who are listening, Mari is a bit of a polyglot herself. Would you use the term? I feel like I, I would. M- knows multiple... Don't test me. <laughs> you're, well, you're proficient in quite a few languages, as, as Zane mentioned. You're French, Spanish, Brazilian, Portuguese, of course, IPA. 
Um, and lately, in addition to being called upon for your extraordinary composition skills, you're also more and more offering translations of untranslated texts as well. Before we jump into that piece specifically, where did your fascination with language come from? Like, what was it that drove you to want to think about um, learning multiple languages? Um, well, I'm Mexican-American, and I wanted to take French in high school. And um, my parents said, no, that I had to take Spanish. Um, and then when I was in high school, I think, I think my, my language study kind of coincides with my music study because I certainly got introduced to singing in different languages. When I was in high school, I had started studying German Lieder and French Melodie, um, you know, just continued studying choral music. And, you know, I just, I, I was always fascinated by not just the musical aspect, but like the poetry. I just wanted to understand and, and do it right. And whenever I went to college, I started listening to Brazilian folk and pop music. And I just like loved it so much. And I, I could understand some of it because I had studied Spanish, um, but I wanted to be able to understand, like sing it, sing along. So I taught myself uh, using books and podcasts and uh, also participated in a little like student group that we built to, to do Portuguese. And um, yeah, it's there when I need it. <laughs> you mentioned, uh, you know, getting it right as a, as a singer or wanting to understand that. How important is, I mean, this is sort of silly, but for those of us who are a bit naive in the translation arts, how important is it to getting it right? I mean, are there examples that you can think of off the top of your head where you're like, oh my God, let me tell you this bit that's constantly mistranslated or what do you lose when you don't, when you get a translation that's a little off? Oh, that's a good question. I think about um, A Boy and a Girl by Eric Whitaker, mm. because I feel like it doesn't uh, cover, it, you know, it doesn't try to soothe or um, I'm trying, it sounds very abstract, but it's an abstract topic. Like the way the words sound and the meaning of what they're saying um, is so much more sensual and unapologetic. And I feel like the translation from Spanish to English that he set is very Anglican. It's very apologetic mm. and it's, it, there's a lot of dairy. It's too much dairy in the music. It's just like soft around the edges the whole time. And like, when I think Octavio Paz, I think like, you know, like um, cactus and like thunderstorms and, and, you know, long strips of land where it's just sand and, you know, creatures under the ground and like flores and, you know, sex and all of that, you know, and I just, I don't, I just feel like it's a little whitewashed, you know? It's like, it's like the Neruda, I forget who set the, maybe it's the Lauridsen piece of, of the Neruda, but he talks about la suavidad de sus manos. And it's like, 
it's not quite the softness. It's not, it's, there's, there's, I, I, I think I feel what you're saying, which is like, there are words like that, like suavidad, which are, which are not just a physical thing, but an emotional. It's cool. Yeah. So like when you say suave, I think it's cool. Yeah. And which suavidad almost, is. almost has a, a healing connotation. Yeah. And when you say, uh, what was it? Smooth? Softness or, or smoothness. Yeah. Soft it's doesn't not... necessarily have that content. So there are limitations with the translations. And it's interesting because we're talking about I flow, I am, which was originally in German. Yes. And, you know, I'm pretty confident in some other languages, but I can pronounce German. I'll sing in German, but don't ask me to translate it. And we're also talking about, um, well, another one with the Oracle Spring. It was also originally in German. It's Goethe. Goethe, yeah. So uh, that's why I guess I just did them in English. <laughs> Um, so maybe some German scholar somewhere is throwing shade at my um, settings of English <laughs> versions of German texts, which is fine. What do you what do you look for then when you look for a translator or translations? I mean, how do you know when you feel like you've got it right? Or usually, it's because I've encountered the poem in English. I, I wasn't even aware that it was German first. Um, which was the case in, in both circumstances. And, uh, but I think it's important to note um, Anita Burroughs and, and Joanna Macy because those are their words and it's their interpretation of Rilke and their lens. And, you know, I, I gave on the inside cover, I, I give a little bit of a background on, you know, who these women have been for their lives and, I think that's an important consideration um, because those poems could be translated probably in a number of different ways. And when I've translated things, it's, it's sometimes really hard to like, at some point you just kind of have to settle to where it's like, you're never gonna get quite the flavor, quite the texture of the original language. Talking a little bit more about um, I Flow, I Am, which, um, by the way, it's very interesting for me being a part of IOC. We, were, we began rehearsing this piece actually in person um, and then moved it to a, a, a virtual choir uh, project once we realized we sort of couldn't get, get back together. Um, and it's interesting because I, I remember standing with, with Fausto at rehearsal because we stand next to each other in the back row. And we just, I mean, the text alone and your setting of the text just shook us. I mean, it really, when you, when you read the text of this piece of I Flow, I Am, um, and Fausto has, is lucky because he actually can read German, so he gets the extra flavor and the extra text of it. Um, it just was so incredibly moving. And it was interesting to be part of both of these worlds, like to rehearse it in person with others, with people physically around you, almost reverberating with each other, very much like the text. And then trying to do it as a virtual choir set it. Does it does it surprise you at all that we're that we're using it as a virtual choir setting? I mean, what are your thoughts about also the timeliness of this piece? And it just feels like it's talk about a time to be singing about it. I mean, um, I really think about the work of the English translators um, and how focused they've been on like environmental justice type things. Um, I mean, that's at least the impression I got the more that I read into who they are. And um, 
you know, the wisdom that they've gotten from their years. Um, they're not young, <laughs> but um, that's really what I think about. Um, I also think about, uh, I don't know if there are many fans in, uh, in uh, IOCSF of Avatar, the last Airbender series. Yeah. But if you've seen it, it's like, I don't know, four or five episodes from the end of the series um, where there's a, a character named Guru Patik and he goes to, to meet him to learn how to get in the avatar state. And there's all these really little, they're like a vignette little he's got to individually unlock every single chakra and um yeah that scene is my favorite scene from the whole series it's really good y'all should go watch it if you haven't but um that's that's kind of how I that was kind of what it made me think of whenever I read this text because uh there's a message saying that you kind of, at the end of the day, have no choice but to be one with nature in order to weather the storm. And I think that that is such a, a profound, uh, like, an, like a metaphor for all the kinds of bullshit that we have to go through in life, you know? And I think that that can mean a lot of different things. But the poetry lends particular images, like water, you know? And yeah, that's basically, it's like, it's like they tell you in your martial arts, you have to be like water, you know, in order to flow and be able to keep on fighting, you know? Sometimes you have to be like water. You're, a lot of your pieces actually do have this beautiful n sort of natural theme or this inspiration that comes from nature. In addition to like your incredible works that you're doing now on social justice and all these pieces too. And I look at some of your pieces that we've done with IOC between um, this piece and um, Oracle of Spring as well has that same uh, appreciation for the, the beauty of nature and um in that same weird duality, uh, it's interesting because IOC's new album just came out and it features your piece, Oracle of Spring, which we're really excited about. And it's sort of a little bit weird to be in our second COVID spring. Like, it's just odd to think about the fact that we have all these songs and these musics that exhort spring, and yet are we fully able to enjoy them? How do you feel about those pieces now? I mean, do you when you think about them in the context of what's going on, could you imagine them being programmed now? Could you relate to those same feelings? Uh, definitely. Um, it definitely benefits me if people are performing <laughs> my music. For sure. But I just, you know, you know, it's like when people ask me about what um, style my compositions are, and I have a lot of trouble with that. Uh, I, I've started to realize some things that I keep on doing and that I like to do. Um, and I won't tell you what that is because I don't want you to like, be like, aha, you did it again, you know? Um, <laughs> but I, to me, each piece is its own universe. And 
Yeah, they're just, you know, honestly, you're, I'm handing you like, you know, a score of music and you're reading it and making it into air. And it's like uh, you're casting spells or summoning creatures, right? It, that's basically, I'm over here doing recipes for y'all. That's kind of how I see it. <laughs> Depends what kind of monster you want to summon. If you want to listen to the entire interview with Mari, please check out episode 203. Now, we're not going to play I Flow I Am on this episode because we want you to attend the IOCSF concert in December. And we are going to stream it, by the way. But let's go ahead and listen to the other piece we were just talking about, Oracle of Spring, which is from IOCSF's live album, Hope in Times of Disquiet, released last fall and available streaming on Apple Music and Spotify. Next up, let's tune into the conversation we had with Jake Heggie about his piece to be premiered by IOCSF in December, Stop This Day and Night with Me. I wanted to ask about, you mentioned um, chorus movements and choruses within operas and that, that um, some of the most moving operas for you um, are ones where the chorus is, uh, has a really central role. Can you Can you talk a little bit more about the role of the chorus and chorus movements or, or parts of an opera and, and maybe what the commonalities and differences are between that and standalone choral works. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, in, in an opera, a chorus is in character. They are 
part of the story and the storytelling and the action. Um, so they are, you know, either, you know, peasants or slaves or, you know, Romans or, <laughs> you know, or villagers or, you know, the police force or, you know, they're, they have a role, they have their, their characters. And so that's where their music springs from what that, what that population is missing or what they want. And that's key to theater is what do these characters want? Why are they on the stage? What happened just before they went on the stage and what is keeping them there? And so that's where the music springs from. It's part of the storytelling, it's part of the action. Um, and uh, I find you know successful choral writing in opera um, doesn't always translate to successful acapella choral writing, you know, um, because the stage, the, the dramatic lyric stage is very different from standalone acapella work. Like Randall Thompson's Alleluia is, you know, glorious and beautiful, but it really won't work on an opera stage. You know, it's just a, a very, very different kind of writing. Um, and it's, you know, and what is the delineation is what the composer's intention was. You know, did the composer intend for this to be a serene moment or a big moment with a an acapella choir on their own? That's a very different task than writing for characters in a, in an opera or a stage work. Um, and that's where it's it's been tricky for me because I am primarily a theater composer, which is why telling a story of some kind with the choir is is very important. Uh, to me, and it's what helps me write effectively. But if, if also, if there's a great text or a great poem that I'm setting, it, it can, it can be an internal, uh, transformative journey that I think can be illuminated by many voices. Uh, like "Stop This Day and Night with Me," the Walt Whitman uh, poem is is one of those. It was written for the King's Singers on a commission. At first, I didn't know what I wanted to write. I had just recently finished uh, Moby Dick. And so I thought I would write something by an illuminist uh, poet from, from that period. And I went to a scholar, a friend who, who knows all of that literature and poetry. And I thought it's for the King singers. It's this many voices. This is what the kind of feel that I'm looking for. And he sent me this Whitman text and it was exactly what I needed. Um, and it was just really inspiring. And it really is about an illuminating moment within yourself. Yeah. You've uh, you've mentioned to me previously about uh, some feelings you have about setting Whitman poetry. Um, would you like to expand on that? <laughs> yeah, I had never set Whitman uh, previously. I, I feel a little bit about setting Whitman like I do about setting Shakespeare. You know, it doesn't does it need music. It's so musical all on its own. And so I've often been at a loss for setting uh, Whitman or Shakespeare. Have I ever set Shakespeare? I don't think I ever have. Um, because there is so much music innate in the language that sometimes when you set it to music, it actually doesn't add anything. It limits it um, versus the the music that's built into the language. Um, that's why, it, you know, looking for the right text uh, at the right moment in your creative life is kind of everything, you know, finding the thing that invites music, you know, words and experiences that invite music in rather than stand on their own where the music is just like an extra layer that doesn't add anything. Um, I just had the joy of working with uh, Margaret Atwood, the great Canadian writer. And uh, she set, she wrote some poems that I set for a, a baritone named Josh Hopkins called songs for murdered sisters. She's a novelist. And so used to 
telling the story all on her own, you know, with the novel. Um, but she's also a brilliant poet and she wrote these really spare, beautiful poems with language that can be sung. And also that leaves a lot of room for music to give us information that the, the words alone cannot. Those are the kind of texts that you have to find. We had an interesting conversation a couple of weeks ago with uh, Joel Chapman of Volte, um, and he wrote a piece called Interdependence, which was very much written for this moment. And he felt um, compelled to complement his piece with a sort of uh, uh, visual component because of sort of where we are right now. And he sort of wanted it to, to, to be like that. On, uh, and not not only because I think for for the the cited, but because he also wanted to create these access points for a larger audience, sort of a non-hearing audience as well. What are your thoughts about in terms of the same way that like adding music to uh, to Margaret Atwood's poetry sort of uh, augmented it? What are your thoughts about the relationship between choral music specifically and sort of this? both this moment right now in terms of like trying to make the most of these like zoom and streaming things. Um, and then in general, this sort of new movement that seems to be happening where you'll go to a live performance and you'll see visuals or things that are sort of thrown up on the wall. Do you feel like that those are um, augmentations to the, to the music? I mean, when you see them, if they're not something that you as the composer intended, do you feel like what is happening? Well, I, you know, the thing is, as a composer, all you could do is write it and put it out there. You know, um, what we do creatively, what you guys do, what a choir does is you, you work really hard to put something out there so that you can give it away. Right. And ultimately we have to give it away. And it's the same thing with one of my scores. I give it away and then someone has a vision or an idea and they present it that way. And it doesn't matter if I like it or not. It was meaningful to that creative person in that moment. And it, maybe it touches someone. You know, I, I've been to productions of my operas. Um, oh, one of them was the Waiting for Guffman production of Dead Man Walking. And I just... <laughs> Were there cinders coming out I of just, no, they it? I just... They just burned the whole was, place down. It was, it was so bad. And <laughs> I was in the audience, like, dying, sinking into my seat. And then this audience went bonkers and stood and cheered and screamed. And there were people crying. And I thought, well, what the heck do I know? You know, it, it, you just never know what, how, how something is going to reach people or touch them. Um, and so that's why we, we let it go. We give it away. We put it out there. And you have to trust. And yeah, there's going to be things that work and things that don't work. That's why I feel about this time. We have to try all these things. Um, people want to stay connected. People want to use the tools that they that they have accessible to be creative and to reach people and to express themselves, to use their voice. Everyone has a voice. You know, we want to use it in whatever way we can that will be helpful to others and connect us and do what the performing arts do, which is gather us, open up a dialogue, open up a bridge or a door to, to, to a different perspective. Um, so I think it's all valid do i like it all no <laughs> am i am i kind of over the online stuff yes i think we all are but um but it's where we are right now so we just have to keep exploring and learning and we will be back in the room together before you know it um and having other experiences and other you know uh conversations but you know first of all yes there will be things that i disagree with when i see them but what an honor that my work inspired these people to come up with an idea. Um, 
that that is extraordinary. I always go back to gratitude that I was lucky enough to be the person to put that on the page and then it inspired someone else. That's just kind of all miraculous. Uh, so uh, really, I just have nothing but gratitude about the whole thing. How do you, this is, this is maybe a kind of a question out of left field, but that's okay. How do you avoid predictability within your compositions? <laughs> um, you know, I just try to let myself be surprised, but um, I do want to avoid predictability, but what I don't want to avoid is inevitability. Because what we're looking for, at least what I'm looking for creatively, is something that feels inevitable, like it had to go that way, and yet it was surprising. Um, so that, you know, like one of the big compliments I ever had was I spent five years writing the opera Moby Dick. It was really, really, really challenging. And at the premiere, which went amazingly well against all odds, um, and was hugely successful, this woman came up to me and she says, well, I don't know why no one's thought of doing Moby Dick as an opera before. I mean, it's so obvious how you do it, you know? And at first I kind of wanted to poke her in the eye, but then I thought, you know, that's actually a huge compliment. It means it felt inevitable. It had to be that way. I remember thinking that about like early on when I was a student thinking, you listen to pieces by Ravel and they're so surprising. And yet, of course they have to go that way, you know? It's inevitable. And that's what we're looking for. I, at least I am as a composer. It's something that feels surprising and inevitable at the same time. Predictable, I hope not, you know? But, you know, other people can say that all I can do is write, you know, and write what feels inevitable and surprising to me, you know? For the full interview with Jake, please check out episode 205. Now, Here's a little taste of an inevitable yet surprising choral composition from Jake. Off of IOCSF's live album, Hope in Times of Disquiet, this is movement two of Jake's piece, Faith Disquiet, entitled, What If I Do I Shall Not Wait, a poem by Emily Dickinson. What if I say?
For our final interview snippet of this episode, here's a segment of the chat we had with Dr. Zeneda Robles about her piece, Can You See?, which IOCSF will be performing as a Bay Area premiere in December. Well, since uh, that gave us a little bit of a taste of, of who you are, um, why don't we move into who you are as a musician? And maybe you can start off by telling us why are you a composer? I don't know. I just was made this way, I think. Um, and I say that because I think um, I have sort of, I'm one of these folks that kind of just always knew I was a musician and was you know, trying to write songs and, you know, from a very young age. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, and, and I just, I just kind of always, I, I can't, rem- I think, I mean, the earliest like age I remember being, do you have, do you have like the earliest age you remember being or earliest age you remember your parents being? So I remember being five years old and knowing that, I was a musician and deciding I was going to start making up songs. Like that's, I, the word composer wasn't in my vocabulary, but I made up songs. And so I would make up songs and, you know, it was very awkward because, you know, I listened to the radio a lot. And so I, I heard a lot of love songs, you know, I was listening to like, you know, kind of eighties back then. I was, I was listening to like a lot of eighties R and B and, and sort of, you know, early hip hop type, type stuff, you know, and stuff. So a lot of love songs, a lot of love themes. And so when I'm writing songs with lyrics about making love and stuff, and I'm six years old, like that's not really the best thing, but I was definitely creative, you know? So, um, that was, that was a sign that, you know, I was maybe, <laughs> I don't know, pretentious or precocious or whatever. Um, but I just never had a question about what, who I was like, this, that's just, um, a gift. And, um, but I didn't, I, I think when I got into, um, academia, I didn't see myself as a composer in an, in an academic or serious way. Um, which I sort of regret. Cause I think that I could have, I don't know that I would have necessarily wanted to do anything different. I don't regret my path, but I regret, the way I saw myself or the way I didn't see myself as someone who could really seriously pursue music composition. I knew I wrote things and I kind of knew that I was, you know, I could be kind of a composer, but it wasn't until recently that I really started to come into my own and understand that I had a a, a significant voice to contribute to the world of, of composition and particularly choral music composition. And so um, maybe in a way I've come full circle. I feel, I feel compelled to, write about things, you know, that are, you know, not maybe what, what we usually hear choir singing about. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I feel like, you know, it's just been an evolution. What is it that's happened recently that has pushed you into being more of a a full blown composer, as you would say? I think it was in 2018 when, um, Alex Blake of Tonality commissioned me to write, Can You See? And Can You See was a piece that was based, is based on protest signs that were kind of popular at the time with statements like love is love, black lives matter, no human is illegal, science is real, um, water is life. And um, he didn't ask me about those signs. I, I don't, for some reason that, that sign just jumped out at me as musical. And um, the piece came to me really quickly um, and it was the first time I felt like I sat down with 
sort of a composer's mindset, like a toolbox, not, not, not just a songwriter or a poet, but like, I'm going to construct this piece with these themes and these motives and layers and, you know, melodic content and harmonic, you know, structure, you know, form. like, I really felt like I, that was the first time I really had an opportunity to use tools that I had been amassing over the years. And once tonality gave me an opportunity to do that, it really opened my eyes. Like, I actually have a skill that I just, I haven't been, why haven't I been using this skill? That was, that was cool. It wasn't easy, but it was definitely fulfilling. And um, that's when I kind of started that, that piece got some attention and then I got requests to do other things and I started doing other things. And so now I've been, I've got several pieces out, um, some of them self-published, a few are, that are published with other companies. Um, and I've got, I've got like four commissions right now, which is something I never imagined I would, would have, um, which is why I say all of a sudden now I'm, I, I feel a little bit like a baby composer. Cause I feel like I just never imagined that I would be, <laughs> sounds terrible. I never imagined like I would be legit, you know, like I, I feel, I feel like my music has a reason to be out where before I didn't feel like my music was for anybody but me. And that's really gratifying. I want to ask a little bit about that and, and combine that a little bit with what you'd mentioned about academia too, that you sort of felt like um, it wasn't for you or something was, you know, that you didn't sort of feel like you were putting out there. Why do you suppose you felt that way? Um, I just didn't think my music, I, I wasn't trying to create cerebral music. I wasn't trying to use, I, I really was kind of turned off. I was, I was, I was pretty good at music theory in, th throughout school, but I was really not very good at, um, uh, uh, materials of modern music and, um, post-tonal analysis and all of the more modern trends in music that really turned me off. And I was sort of like, if that's what I have to do to be a modern composer, like screw that. I don't want to, I don't want to make music like that music doesn't speak to me. And it, that music is, I understand its place and I definitely appreciate being an artist, you know, as a singer who has enough skills to sort of execute music like that. Like I can appreciate it from an academic standpoint, but I don't want to hear that, <laughs> like, you know, like, I don't want to, I'm not going to sit down and want to listen to it. I mean, I get, unless, you know, I'm trying to challenge myself, you know, from a musical academic standpoint, but I, mean, I guess you have, I mean, every art you have to push, you know, the envelope, but I wasn't trying to push anything. I'm not, I'm not trying to push anything in terms of technique or, you know, uh, compositional vocabulary. I just have emotions that I want to explore, or I want I have, subjects that I want to explore using a musical vernacular that I was familiar with or that that was intriguing or, or sonically exciting to me. Like I love exploring, um, I, you know, I like the sounds of the whole tone scale. I like, I love extended harmonies and jazz chords. I like ninths, you know, I like ear candy, you know, I like the stuff that just, that sounds pretty. And I also like, I like exploring, the, you know, the divisions of the octatonic scale. I got into that a little while and I love how there's different chords that you can pick out of that and, and move around, you know, um, tertiary harmonies and stuff like, so I, I could get kind of nerdy about it, but it was never en far enough to, to be what I thought would be serious music. So that's why I didn't really think of my music or my com compositional voice as being one that needed to be out. That's such an interesting thing to bring up, 
you know, we, we've had a conversation with a lot of our guests about <sighs> academia and it's the way that music that is academic uh, is exclusionary, you know, in that if you don't understand it, then you can't appreciate it, that kind of thing. And, and I think that your music, and you mentioned your piece, Can You See, which of course is, is really easy to uh, get attached to. I personally am very attached to that composition. I think that it, it's it's just a really moving piece of music. And, Thank you. And the thing about it, and we talked to Alex a little bit about this as well, is that it's it's inclusive. It's the kind of music that you don't have to know music theory. You don't have to know what octatonicism means or any of the things that you just referenced. You don't have to know any of that stuff to be able to appreciate and for it to move you. And yet it is chock full of those things. Like That's the true. last minute, all the contrapuntal things that you have done where you've set the melody of the national anthem and there is just a car wreck going on behind you emotionally. <laughs> I mean, it is just extraordinary. Yeah. But like, I mean, are there other like little hidden nerdy details you might be able to tell us about? <laughs> um... Um, you know, it's hard to say because I, I think with like a piece like that, I, I think that, well, for one thing, I, I don't throw too many nerdy details into these. Like maybe there's like one nerdy detail, you know, so, <laughs> so like the detail about can you see is the, the, the motives, you know, each, each line from the, from the uh, protest sign has its own motive and its own treatment. Um, and so, you know, you know, that's borrowed from, I don't know who, who did, who did motives and things. A bunch of opera composers did motifs, and you know, or like you know, the film score people do do motifs and stuff like that. You know, right? Yeah, yeah. You can take a single motive and develop. Yeah, sure. Star, yeah. Every every Star Wars character has its own theme, right? Mm -hmm. So it's similar, sort of in a way, like on a much much smaller scale. Can you see each each line has its kind of own thing? You know, um, so I'm or yeah, that, I mean that's that's basically it. You know, and then there's this this idea. Maybe there you could think of uh, this the middle section, the the motif that I created for the science is real section, which I think Alex says is like his one of his favorite parts. Um, but the sci the science section is kind of a canon, um, and then it's a canon um, sort of with um, is real, yeah. Da, 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 da. yeah exactly. And so I've just kind of layered that at different levels. And, and then the each voice part comes in, you know, kind of staggered entrances. And then the last voice parts to come in are the sopranos and just kind of ramp it up a little bit with their entrance is actually aleatoric. So they don't even have a, a metrical moment to come in. They just, once they start, they just kind of sing at their own, you know, speed and, um, and tempo to kind of give it this kind of weird, weird kind of out of time, you know, sort of infinity sound is what I, I think I was thinking of in terms of when I think of science, I was, I think I really was thinking about the, the infinite awesomeness of, of space. And so that's what I was trying to create by layering this canon, the order of the canon, and then the, the uh, infinite possibility of the aleatoric motion of the Sopranos. That's nerdy. Oh my, oh my God. God, so all nerdy. of that in like five, six minutes. Good that Lord. Was good. How you that patch was all good. That. And it's amazing to hear you talk about these meters and be like, eh, I don't know. I'm not really a fan. And then just be like, but actually, I'm a master of all of them. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. I love that. It's, just, it's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. If you'd like to hear more about Zaneda and her works, please check out In Unison episode 307. But we definitely want to leave you with one final piece of music. So here is Lady in Blue 
written by Dr. Zaneda Robles and performed by Tonality on their 2019 album, Sing About It.
We really hope to see you at IOCSF's performances of our freshly squeezed program this year. They'll take place on Saturday, December 4th at Christ Church Berkeley, as well as on Saturday, December 18th at St. Mark's Lutheran in San Francisco. Both concerts start at 7.30 p.m., and admission, as always, is free. We will, of course, gladly accept your generous donations, and the San Francisco concert will be streamed live, in case you're not in the area. All of this information can also be found on our show notes and online at iocsf.org. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison Podcast. Be sure to check out episode extras and subscribe at inunisonpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social media at inunisonpod. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think. Concert footwear checked by Chorus Dolores, who, much like the key of C minor, only has a few sensible flats. In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our transcripts have been diligently edited by IOCSF member and friend of the pod, Fausto Daus. And our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Please be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.